for us who are falling in this chronic stress state, a lot of the guys you have on your podcast, you know, we're always in this hyper aroused state where eventually our adrenals stop. Adrenal fatigue, I always give the analogy, is kind of like a, a diabetic, right? So you've produced so much cortisol because you've been in this chronically stressed state. Eventually, it actually starts to go low. Stage one, you get the cortisol spike. Maybe it stays a little bit elevated. Stage two, a chronically elevated stress state. So cortisol is really high. Stage three, you're fatigued all the time. I'm wired all the time, I feel anxious, but I'm so tired and I have to rely on a cup of coffee, multiple cups of coffee, very flat, fatigued levels of energy. And then there's even a stage four, which is complete like adrenal failure, but wired and tired is really the feeling of adrenal fatigue. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next podcast guest back to the studio. Uh, she was on episode 49. She's the host of the Sheer Madness podcast. She's the CEO of Rachel Shear Nutrition. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Rachel Shear. Mike, thank you for having me back. I've yeah. been looking forward to this for a long time. It's been, what, three years? Yeah. Two years, three years? It has three and change, yep. So uh, we were at a different studio the last time you were here. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you coming back. I know we've been uh, trying to line this up for a little while now. Uh, too busy schedule sometimes mm -hmm. can be difficult, even though we're in the same city. But uh, so since episode 49, the last three years, uh, before we get into some of kind of the new topics and things uh, health uh, and nutrition and fitness related that we're going to talk about. Uh, give us an update on what you've been up to. Hmm. Head down grinding quite a bit. <laughs> my focus uh, has really been on my mission in functional medicine. I think last time I was on, I shared a little bit of my story, my health issues, and what I created, which was a functional medicine nutrition practice to help other people get to the root cause of their health issues. And since then, you know, we have just grown exponentially in such an incredible way. I'm, I'm so grateful for it. But in a way, that's taken up the majority of my time. Uh, we have a few coaches, we probably have around, I think, 12 people on my team now and continuing to grow, servicing people all throughout the United States, even a bit internationally with the functional medicine lab testing that we do, uh, speaking. That's been something that's been new for me. Do you do, you do that, uh, I mean, monthly? I mean, do you do it often? Yeah, I would never say that I'm a, a speaker because it's not my full-time job. Even like podcasting, I'd be like, okay, I'm a podcaster, but it's not like my number one thing that I do. Like really being a functional medicine dietitian is my main zone of genius along with, you know, running my entire business since I'm the CEO but I've gotten a lot more speaking opportunities. And I think part of it was because speaking scared me to death for the longest yeah. time. Even podcasting really? used to scare me. Yeah, I'm incredibly introverted. I used to be so nervous. I think even the first podcast we did, I was still like just getting comfortable with like being on camera oh, and wow. speaking. And, and you would listen to that episode and you'd be like, I never would have thought that. Yeah. And like, I can, I can tap in and turn it on, but it's like the nerves are there. But, um, Recently, you know, there's been a lot more talks about entrepreneurship and business growth and just because of a lot of the success that my business has seen. 
So often it's usually about gut health, taking a gut-centric approach to healing, root cause approach. And then I do a lot of business talks too about entrepreneurship for women, how to use your story to build an incredible brand, because that's really what I did is I, I talked about my story, my own healing, my own pain. And I took that and I, I turned it outward. Yeah. And I shared that. And that's what built my brand. It built my business. And then now I've had a lot of women who go through even my my practice. They get the healing that they want. Like I've had a client who had uh, Hashimoto's, an autoimmune condition, came in. You know, she couldn't lose weight for the life of her. Western medicine completely failed her. And she was just on medications for her thyroid issue. Uh, she couldn't lose weight because Hashimoto's affects your thyroid, which affects your body's ability to lose weight. We were able to help her heal and reverse a lot of her Hashimoto's. And then, you know, for her, she was like, I want to help other women. I want to help them do this too. And uh, it's been cool because as my business has grown, it's always been like, what do people need and want from me? Like I never sought out even to do business coaching, but now I've stepped in to actually help women now take their own journey, their own stories, even become certified in nutrition, functional nutrition, not like what I do as a registered dietitian in functional medicine, but more functional nutrition, learning about gut health, thyroid, hormonal balance, and then using their story to build a brand so then they can help other people, you know, heal and reach their most optimal health. And I think that's what's really, really incredible now with where I'm at is it's, helping women and men too, but I definitely have a lot more women, but create this, this healing and reach their optimal health. And then they're like, holy shit, I want to help other people realize what it's like to actually feel good and then turn that even into a business. Yeah. Have, have you brought, uh, are some of the coaches, uh, clients of yours or former clients that have turned into coaches or I had one that was a previous client and then turned into a coach, but I only bring on registered dietitians. Yeah. So often we don't have a lot of registered dietitians going through my program, maybe sure. every so often. Yeah. How, uh, how many coaches does your company have at this point other than you? Uh, three, bringing on two more. Oh, wow. And so um, I guess like for a prospective client, what is the process when they uh, come to you and say, hey, you know, here are my issues? Like what, what is the... I know it's not cookie cutter, everybody's different, but is there kind of a, a standard protocol that you use to identify what testing to do or do you, do you do all the same testing or how does it work? Yeah, We have a base testing bundle that we do, you know, and what I explained to everybody is, you know, the first step is really getting to what is off and asking the question, why is it off? So functional medicine, you could say is the medicine of why and Western medicine is the medicine of what. So in Western medicine, they'll do very basic testing and then based off of that testing they'll really just rule out if there's anything that's a major disease maybe they'll give you the diagnosis of ibs an autoimmune condition like for gut issues if you have crohn's ulcerative colitis they'll look for anything major you know sometimes do colonoscopy endoscopy but if all of that checks out normal especially for the people who more so have chronic health conditions think like overweight hormonal imbalances, thyroid issues, um, gut issues, depression, where it is really lifestyle based, these people are really just left managing the symptoms, yeah. right? They're given a medication um, or they're just brushed off. You know, we see that quite a bit with women who go to the doctor and they're like, I know something's off. I don't feel good. Maybe they feel like they have a hormone issue. They're like, I have terrible PMS. 
they run testing and then they're like, okay, everything looks normal. We can put you on birth control. Um, and that's really like their options. Yeah. And uh, they feel stuck and like no one's really taking them seriously. And that's what happened to me with Western medicine and all of my gut issues where I was even suggested that I had my entire large intestine removed because of all of my own um, bloating and ability to use the restroom and everything came back. You could say normal. There was no Crohn's colitis. Nothing was diseased where Western medicine really does shine, right? When it comes to a lot of those major issues, but it was more so just, I had IBS. I had irritable bowel syndrome. My gut was irritable. So let's put her on laxatives. Let's put her on an antidepressant because of her mood. Let's put her on birth control, you know, for hormones, thyroid medication. And I was put on all these medications and then just got worse and worse and worse. So kind of coming back to your question though about like our approach, uh, we do a different type of testing. We have a base bundle, but it's, it's looking at everything in terms of not just the selected area based off of what is, where their symptoms. For example, if you feel like you have um, bloating or constipation or diarrhea, we're not just gonna only look at maybe things that align with the gut. We wanna look at the full picture. So it's about 20, no, 40 pages of lab testing that we do. It's gonna be looking at things like your gut microbiome, which even if you go to a gastroenterologist, they won't look at your gut microbiome. So the gut microbiome is really the, the encompass of all of the bacteria that live in your gut, both good and bad bacteria. So probiotics, we call these the good guys. Uh, they're very beneficial for our health. And then there can be other microbes that are in our gut, uh, gut pathogens that are more disease causing. There is fungus, uh, fungus can overgrow, something called candida overgrowth we can get. There can be parasites, you know, and when we do this stool test and we can look at someone's microbiome, we can really identify, you know, what is off. And then also look at things like, is there low digestive enzymes? Is there any leaky gut? And it's a much different picture than just doing a colonoscopy, endoscopy, and some basic blood work. But we don't just look at that. We want to look at hormones, how somebody's metabolizing their hormones so we can identify why you maybe have a hormonal imbalance. And in Western medicine, you know, we look at it's not just if you have a hormone imbalance and here's a medication to fix it. It's why are your hormones off, right? And it can be because you have gut microbiome imbalances. Actually, you can have a type of bacteria in your gut that is overgrown and it produces this enzyme called beta-glucuronidase and you reabsorb estrogen back into your body. So part of the reason why you're gaining weight and you have PMS as a woman is actually because of your gut bacteria. So it's really cool to see how it's connected, hormones, adrenals, uh, micronutrients. So if you're deficient in anything, looking at things like, of course, cholesterol, inflammation, blood sugar, insulin resistance, and then even toxins, environmental toxins. And these are often missed in Western medicine, but it's a huge root cause for, you know, neurological issues, even anxiety, depression. Uh, it's a huge root cause for autoimmune conditions. So people who have Hashimoto's, ulcerative ulcerative colitis, uh, because it's triggering a lot of immune upregulation and inflammatory response. So it's a different kind of testing, and we're really looking at these different body systems and how it's all interconnected. Basically, everything is influencing everything in the body. Uh, with looking at 
the person's nutrition. What are they eating? What are they putting into their body? What are their stress levels like? What medications are they taking? What are their supplements that they're taking? What medications are they on? And also getting to know what their goals are. You know, what do they want to create for themselves? How do they want to feel every single day? What do they want to get rid of with how they're currently feeling? So we take all of this into consideration when we see somebody coming in. And then my coaches and me, because we're an interdisciplinary team, we're all working together and all of our clients who come in, we're able to create more of a customized plan and say, okay, this person, right, who had the high estrogen levels that's causing the weight gain and the PMS, a lot of it's coming from the gut, but what caused her gut to be off? Okay, it's her diet. And we correct the systems in the order that it occurs. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems, I mean, when you explain it, it seems almost uh, like common sense. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. Yet, but know, we don't. But yeah, I mean, Western uh, medicine is, is terrible that way. I mean, especially with even stuff like joint pain, you know, it's like, oh, operate on it, you know, or, or a lot of times it's like, stretches or, or doing certain mobility routines will, will fix it. And the first thing they want to do is put you under the knife and, re, and replace mm -hmm. your knee or your hip or, or whatever, when it's just, you've got an imbalance in your lower back and you just need to stretch a certain way, you know, for a, a six week period and, and it'll fix it. But, um, I'm curious, I mean, it seems like as if you look kind of historically at, at the standard American diet, even, you know, a hundred years ago, 60 years ago, um, sugar and, and wheat and, and carbs even were, were simpler and different than they are now. Whether it's, you know, genetically modified stuff or, you know, some of the pesticides and herbicides that are being used on some of the products, you know, it seems like there's kind of almost a perfect storm of, of different mm -hmm. factors that are creating this even worse and worse food. Is, is there, from your experience, uh, kind of some of the worst culprits food-wise that people eat that maybe they don't realize are bad? Or is there kind of a, a recurring theme that you see with a lot of people that come in when it's a, a diet-related issue where there's things that are the most common culprits? Mm. I mean, most people who come in are dealing with some degree of chronic inflammation in the body, Right, so chronic inflammation really is the root cause of most disease. And when I talk about disease in my practice, I call it dis-ease. So just an imbalance in the body that can lead to all of these other different health conditions. And then the second one I see quite a bit is insulin resistance, um, which both of those typically come back to lifestyle, not, not all the time, but most of the time it does. And um, you know, with our diet, I agree with you, you know, the diet has definitely shifted over these last few years. And even right now, like meat is something that is uh, demonized quite a bit, right? And uh, we're, I think where we really ran into issues is just us as humans messing with so much of the food. Um, you know, like a lot of the meat now that we do eat, it is highly processed. Like there's a hormones, antibiotics injected into them. They're confined in a cages. They're grain fed and sometimes even fed candy with a lot of these cattle. Um, like seriously, there's videos of showing cattle being fed like candy and sugar basically because their goal is how can we fatten up these cows as fast as possible so we can slaughter them so we can, of course, make a product out of it. Yeah. 
And, you know, the meat's not the problem. It's how we're processing a lot of this food for sure. You know, and I think most standard, most of the standard American diet, at least 36% is consists of industrial seed oils and sugar, which are very nutrient poor. They're calorie dense, but they're nutrient poor. So, you know, a good third amount of the calories in most people's diets are missing the key nutrients that we need. You know, and we do this testing and we'll see quite a bit deficiencies in omega-3 fatty acids. That's probably the most common deficiency. I'd say about nine out of 10 people who we run their omega-3s and omega-6s are low in omega-3s, EPA and DHA, which are main anti-inflammatory fatty acids, which are really important too for our mental health because they cross the blood-brain barrier. I always describe it to people as like our blood-brain barrier is like a bouncer at a club and like <laughs> your omega-3s get to go like the front of the line and they get to go like right in. Um, omega-6s though as well too, but these are pro-inflammatory fats, arachidonic acid and linoleic acid. And they're not bad, but we see a tenfold increase in the levels of arachidonic acid compared to EPA, our main anti-inflammatory fats. So what this means is people are getting way too much of these pro-inflammatory fats, omega-6s and not enough of those omega-3s, which you can get a good amount of omega-3s from kind of going back to the meat, like grass-fed and finished high quality meat, but it's very devoid in that and actually high in omega-6s when it's a lot more processed and grain-fed. Um, an analogy I used to actually give a lot of my clients is, you know, think of somebody who, you know, eats a diet that's mainly like bread and pasta and they're on a lot of medications and like what their body composition looks like. That's the cow that is fed like grain and given all these hormones. And then they're very sedentary too. Not going to be in the most ideal health yeah. versus somebody who eats maybe lots of fruits and veggies and is like active, like that body composition is going to be very different. That's the cow that's going to be grass fed and, and finished. And then we're eating their meat and then it's affecting our health. So it's not only we are what we eat, but we're also, we are what our food eats yeah. as well. So that's a really big one. And then that can cause a lot of this inflammation and a deficiency in even DHA, one of those main omega-3 fats has been shown to cause a shrinkage in our hippocampus in the brain, which plays a huge role in memory. So now we see earlier onset of things like dementia, Alzheimer's, all coming even back to our diet and, and causing this inflammation throughout our entire body. Uh, with that, the DHA, I mean, fish oil, are you a fan of that or, or do you prefer to get it from food? Like with, uh, I guess, the omega-3s and DHA and stuff like that, is, yeah. is, is it okay to pop good fish oil or is it always preferable to get it from real food? I always say real food is going to be the most important option for us to go to for, but you know, you can get it from supplementation. And the truth is most people aren't getting enough from their diet. And what we really see most people are deficient in even more than the DHA is typically that EPA fatty acid, because we'll measure that ratio of EPA to arachidonic acid. And the ratio should be uh, typically two to 10 or the number when we create that ratio. And for most people, you know, we're seeing well over a hundred with it. Wow. So we can 
redo that ratio or improve it by essentially decreasing the levels of arachidonic acid. So this is going to be um, trying to eat less inflammatory foods, industrial seed oils, vegetable oils, which anytime you're eating foods that are processed, they're probably having a good amount of industrial seed oils and vegetables, the chips, you know, all of the packaged type foods that we eat and even salad dressings quite a bit too. If you read the back, you'll see, you know, canola oil oil and all these different types of oils. And even sometimes too, you're getting like marinated, you know, steak or chicken and I'm getting it from like Whole Foods. And I'm like, why is there canola oil in this? And you just start to realize it's literally in like everything that you're eating. So once you start paying attention to that one, there's like a freak out. I see people go through, they're like, there's canola oil and seed oils and everything. And you're like, yep, yeah. But it's just starting to notice that and like actually read the back of like labels and then being able to reduce that amount. And it can make a big difference just starting to pay attention to that. And then increasing your amount of omega-3s, which can be from eating higher quality animal protein, grass-fed and finished, ideally local and organic. Um, That's going to be always the best. And then also, too, like you can supplement with an omega-3 fatty acid. Um, You just want to make sure it's a high quality omega-3. Most of the fish oils that where people get a lot of like burping after, um, they can actually be rancid. So is there it, a brand that you'd recommend? We use uh, Metagenics quite a bit. It's pharmaceutical grade. I've okay. never had issues with that. And we do see a really good improvement when we can supplement with about four grams, which is a high dose, high dose of EPA for people who are low in their omega-3s and then their levels of arachidonic acid are elevated. Are you, f- are you familiar with uh, Nordic Naturals? Mm-hmm. Is that? I think that one's good. I haven't dove into that one too much. Metagenics is the one. Metagenics, yeah. And you take four grams? Four grams of EPA. Is that what you take? Uh, I take two now, but for most people who are deficient, four grams is usually pretty effective at bringing those levels up. Yeah, okay. Uh, What other foods are high in in EPA and and DHA other than grass-fed and finished beef? Uh, Wild-caught fish, salmon, mackerel. Um, you can get it from uh, a little bit from baby shrimp too, uh, caviar. Really? So for anyone who wants to be fancy, a little bit of caviar. <laughs> but it's like nobody is like probably eating an abundance of these foods. So we yeah. see really good omega three levels for people who are more coastal quite a bit. Yeah. But on the other side, we tend to also see high levels of mercury, yeah. which is a heavy metal that we also test for. So there's kind of like pros and cons. So sometimes uh, tuna, for example, can be pretty high in mercury, which is neurotoxic, crosses our blood-brain barrier, and is not good for our health, really impacts our our gut health. So wild-caught fish, salmon, mackerel, that can be okay. A little bit of sometimes mercury can be found in mackerel, uh, baby shrimp, caviar. And then outside of that, there's some plant-based options. Uh, Walnuts can be a good source, pumpkin seeds, um, however, I always say to people, you'd have to be like beer bonging, <laughs> like walnuts and pumpkin seeds to yeah. be able to get enough that your body really needs. So yeah. you really do need to be getting it from typically animal protein yeah. from fish and then maybe adding in a supplementation. I got you. But if you guys are anything like me, you know, uh, trouble sleeping can be uh, something that, you know, affects how, how well the next day is and how productive you are. Uh, if you are having trouble sleeping, I've been working with this company called Dream. 
And if poor sleep is negatively impacting your life, I encourage you to check them out. It's Beam's Dream Powder. It's a science-backed hot cocoa for sleep. And uh, if you know anything about me and the things that I talk about on this show, you know that uh, sleep is a huge thing and Dream has been a game changer. Um, you know, one, one of the biggest components to the sleep regimen and, and the morning routine that I have is incorporating this uh, Beam Dream, cocoa, uh, Dream Powder, which uh, this, this hot cocoa is phenomenal. Um, today, the listeners get a special discount on Beam's Dream Powder. It's a science-backed hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. Better sleep has never tasted better. Um, it's one of my favorite things to uh, wind the day down with. They've got chocolate, peanut butter, cinnamon cocoa. There's 15 calories, no sugar. Uh, it's high-quality high efficacy and formulated to ease your body into rest, support all four stages of the sleep cycle, and help you fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. Um, a lot of other sleep aids have next day grog in a stream. Uh, it's got an all-natural blend of raishi, uh, magnesium, L-theanine, uh, apigen, and, and melatonin to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. It's easy to add to the nighttime routine. Just mix uh, the powder into hot water or milk, froth it, and enjoy before you go to bed. If you want to try Dream Beam's best-selling Dream Powder, get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com slash mic drop and use the code mic drop at checkout. That's beam, B-E-A-M dot com slash mic drop and use the code mic drop for up to 40% off. You guys know I talk about sleep a lot and recovery. Uh, magnesium is a big part of sleep, uh, but it's not only sleep that being deficient in magnesium uh, you know, can, can cause problems with. An estimated 75% of all adults in the United States are deficient in magnesium, and it's not just sleep. Uh, it can be digestion, it can be cognition, it can be energy, it can be recovery. Uh, magnesium is a vital component to our body's process. And with that, I mean, a whole host of other uh, issues can, can come from magnesium def deficiency. Uh, it can be a root cause of anxiety, depression, insomnia, stress, uh, all of those things combined are contributing factors to issues that a lot of people face. Ned has come out with the product Mellow, which is a magnesium um, product. It's a powerful daily super blend, and it contains three of the most bioavailable and nutrient-dense forms of chelated magnesium on Earth. Two of the most stress-busting aminos, GABA and L-theanine, and over 70 trace minerals. Mellow is truly in a league of its own. It offers 300-plus benefits to help with better sleep and optimal health and wellness. It comes in four very delicious flavors. There's lemon, lavender berry, pomegranate, and naked, which is a stripped-down flavor-free version that's great for adding to smoothies, coffee, shakes, shakes etc. Uh, the folks at Ned have spent over three years developing their best-selling Mellow Magnesium Super Blend, um, and it's, uh, you know, they've really gone to the ends of the earth to create one of the best magnesium products on the planet. Become the best version of yourself and get 15% off NED products with code MICDROP, all caps, all one word. Go to helloned.com forward slash MICDROP or enter code MICDROP at the checkout. That's helloned.com slash MICDROP to get 15% off. These statements and products have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or condition. Um. With uh, with the gut being so connected to everything, it seems um, medications are the most prevalent they've ever been in our society. Mm -hmm. One thing that I've I've seen, uh, I guess, recently with 
um, especially like in the in the veteran space with PTSD and depression and but also you know a lot of these guys have you know a ton of injuries and and so they're prescribed a lot of these you know opioid based um, well both opioid based uh, medications as well as like SSRIs for depression which both of those things in terms of what it does to your stomach is pretty significant. Um, can you kind of walk through the, the process of what taking medications that spike dopamine and serotonin and, and kind of wash out the receptors, like how that wreaks havoc and that process and then how to, how to heal that kind of stuff. And, and like, if you come across a patient where that's the case, where they've been on, you know, heavy medications in both of those realms for, you know, years, maybe how, how would you approach kind of tackling healing that? Yeah. Some of the medications that we see are the most detrimental to the gut microbiome are, of course, antibiotics, just because it wipes out most of your gut flora, NSAIDs in particular. So pain medications can play a pretty big role. Um, they break down the gut lining. And this is why even sometimes like stomach ulcers uh, are pretty common in people who are taking pain medications but we can see more of a breakdown of the gut lining, which can lead to something called intestinal permeability or a leaky gut. Um, and when that's happening, we can get more food, bacteria, and toxins leaking into our bloodstream, stimulating more of that immune and inflammatory response, uh, which can actually in the long run lead to the onset of an autoimmune condition and can also lead to um, neurological issues. Brain fog is actually one of the most common symptoms of leaky gut that we see in my practice, skin issues quite a bit. But also too, you know, our gut lining is really important for our microbiome health. Um, it's actually like a guard from bacteria being able to enter into our bloodstream, but we also see these pain medications can disrupt our microflora. So we can see an overgrowth sometimes in more pathogenic bacteria or bacteria that are more inflammatory to the body. Uh, we call these gram-negative bacteria. They produce something called uh, LPS, it's a lipopolysaccharide, and uh, this is more inflammatory to the body, really. And uh, so over time, we start to see this microbiome disruption or something we call dysbiosis, and this intestinal permeability come about from these pain medications, antibiotics, uh, proton pump inhibitors or antacids are actually pretty bad as well too. Uh, just because the acid that we produce in our, our stomach is also first line defense. So as we are eating food, we're taking something literally outside here and we're putting into our body, that stomach acid is that first line defense to kill off a lot of that bacteria. So medications in the long run can be pretty detrimental. Now, SSRIs, right, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, for some people short-term-wise, they can see improvements in their gut health because we're seeing more serotonin, right, being produced. But when someone tries to come off of an SSRI, then we really see a negative downstream effect with our gut health too. And for me, I was even on an SSRI for most of my upbringing. I was put on it when I was 16 years old. And I remember as I was trying to come off of it, not to mention how just awful it was with the withdrawal, but a lot of my gut issues started to flare up. And that's because even a lot of our serotonin that is produced is produced in our gut. 90% of our serotonin is produced in our gut. 
And what that serotonin does is it actually stimulates our vagus nerve, which is that largest nerve in the body connects our gut all the way to our brain. And it goes through our heart and it also connects to all of our other organs. And when somebody has low serotonin, we're not actually stimulating that vagus nerve and people end up more in that, uh, that sympathetic state, more of like a fight or flight cortisol reactive state and the gut actually begins to shut down. So, you know, we start to see some of these downstream effects, but for also to someone who immediately gets on an SSRI, they may be like, hey, my gut feels better because I'm producing more serotonin. But what we also tend to see with people who get on SSRI is they feel better for a little while and then they start to just kind of feel back to where they were baseline. And then when they try to come off, they feel even worse. And that's because, you know, what's happening is we're shutting these reuptake transports where the serotonin can basically go back home. But as these serotonin molecules are firing on the neurons, there's these enzymes that actually come and can eat them up. So there's an enzyme called uh, MEO, an MEO enzyme, and these are eating up a lot of the serotonin. So we kind of now have less serotonin altogether. And then as soon as we open back up that reuptake transporter and serotonin can go back in, we actually have much less. So we're quote unquote depleted in serotonin and that will really negatively affect our gut health. Wow. Uh, would you put uh, opioids in the, in that same category or, or are they different? Are, are they more damaging to the, to the gut in terms of lining similar to uh, NSAIDs or, or are they more similar to antidepressants? I haven't done a whole lot of research on that one in particular, but I, I feel like it would be more similar to NSAIDs, at least. As far as hammering your gut, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's fascinating. So uh, with the, uh, I, I guess the gut being, you know, the, the central uh, manufacturer of, of serotonin, what is, what is the process for you guys if somebody comes in and, and says, or, or, you know, you determine that they've been on, you know, a host of medications that has gotten them to that point? What, what's the, the best way to heal a, a gut? Obviously getting off of that stuff, but to, to repair it once you're off yeah. of that, what, what, what do you do? And you're, and you're spot on. You want to, of course, remove what caused the gut to be off in the first place. Otherwise, we're going to have a really hard time, like, fully healing the gut which for some people can be a bit of a slow process. I would never advise anybody to just cold turkey, come off of a medication, even for myself, as I was weaning off of the SSRI, SSRI I was on, it was a long period of time, right? So um, coming off of that, anything else that's also causing the gut to become off, for most people, it's not just one thing. You know, we do this in-depth look at nutrition, you know, medications, lifestyle, you know, getting these lab tests done because it's not just, you know, what is the root cause? It's what are the root causes, plural. So oftentimes we'll see medications. Sometimes we'll see a lot of just stress in their life, which, you know, would probably make sense for a lot of these guys who are on those medications anyway. Oftentimes too, for somebody who's struggling with depression or is on, you know, pain medication, they also too maybe don't have the best eating habits because of a lot of that you know, emotional, physical pain that they're struggling with, you know, so maybe, you know, they cope a little bit with Slim Jims and Cheetos, Slim Jims, ordering in food, Grubhub, 
you know, getting a lot of food that is more inflammatory, sugar, sometimes it's drinking, you know, alcohol is also really bad for our gut, you know, and some people like hate, hate hearing that. And, you know, I'm even the person every now and then I'll have like a glass of wine and something like that. But I know it's not good for, yeah. for the gut. And especially when you're trying to heal the gut, it can be really hard to do so when we have a lot of these things in the diet. So one of the things I always communicate to our, our clients is there's the difference between gut health and gut healing. So when you have gut symptoms, so you're struggling with whether it's constipation, diarrhea, chronic bloating, these are the, the gut symptoms we tend to see the most, but there can also be you know, depression, anxiety, mood, um, low energy, brain fog, like I mentioned earlier with leaky gut is a big symptom that we see too with gut issues. So you can have gut issues without having gut symptoms, which is what's very interesting for a lot of people to understand. So that's why the testing is really necessary because you could be somebody coming in and like, I don't have gut symptoms. I feel like my gut is awesome. But maybe you have, you know, skin issues like psoriasis and you're chronically fatigued all the time and you have depression and then we do the gut microbiome test on you and you have a lot of dysbiosis, bacterial overgrowth, you have leaky gut and your gut's inflamed. Then we wanna get you started on a gut healing protocol. So one, removing the things that cause the gut to be off and really identifying that. But then two, you know, sometimes it's, it's treating now the damage as well. So if there's a lot of bacteria overgrowth, we wanna be able to eliminate or eradicate a lot of that bacteria overgrowth. So for some people, they can even get something called SIBO, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, where some bacteria actually migrates up into the small intestine. Very common symptom of that is a lot of bloating and distension. Um, and when you're eating sometimes even healthy foods, if you have SIBO, the bacteria are basically fermenting on a lot of the fibers that you're eating in your diet. So healthy foods now like broccoli, asparagus, onions, but you're bloated all the time. And a very tall tale sign of somebody who has SIBO is they had a really shitty diet and they tried to eat healthy and they added in all these vegetables and fiber and they're like, I feel so bloated. What the heck is happening? Well, your microbiome hasn't developed or you have SIBO because you have to have a certain type of bacteria to break down a lot of these fibers. So if there's bacteria overgrowth, we'll want to treat that. We can do that with antimicrobials, which are basically an herbal antibiotic. Um, in some cases, they use actual antibiotics in Western medicine, but those tend to have more side effects and negative effects in the long run. Um, there are some antibiotics that are just localized to the gut, but we like to take more of an herbal approach. So things like oil of oregano, berberine, um, allicin, which is a component of garlic. These are natural antibiotics that we can put somebody on, which will lower some of the inflammatory bacteria, lower maybe even gut pathogens. If someone has a parasite, we're, we're treating that. And then step two is repair. So repairing that gut lining. If there's inflammation, if the gut lining has been broken down, we want to keep out still the things that were causing the breakdown, but we can add in some good gut healing supplements. So things like L-glutamine, omega-3 fatty acids, uh, zinc is really beneficial, colostrum, bone broth. Um, actually, even peptides can be really beneficial for healing the gut lining. There's one we use quite a bit called BPC-157. You may have heard of that one before. because yeah, it's Wolverine. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's really good for for healing in general, but when taken orally as a supplement, 
it's really good for healing the gut lining. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Uh, I mean, I, I, excuse my ignorance. I thought all peptides were uh, like sub Q injectables, mm -hmm. but so they have a BP, BPC 157 that's oral. Like oral. That's cool. Yeah. If you use it as an injection, and like let's say you have an injury, it works a bit more localized, but yeah. if you do it orally, it works pretty well for healing the gut. So, so inject it into the gut then, right? No. no. <laughs> no I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, so eradicating the bacteria overgrowth. So we call this more of like the removal phase, removing what caused it to be off, eradicating the core bacteria overgrowth, restoring the gut lining. And then after we've done that, which is really the majority of the healing phase, there's a transition more into restoring. So we've done a lot of, you know, protocols to get rid of bacteria. Well, now we want to build a very robust and healthy microbiome work more on gut diversity. So now it's actually switching a little bit to focus more on adding fibers in, adding things like prebiotics, probiotics. So prebiotics are going to be more of those fibrous type foods, which often when you're healing the gut, someone may not tolerate very well. They may get a lot of bloating. But as we fix the bacteria issue or the overgrowth, you should be able to tolerate those better. And then we can slowly add in these prebiotics probiotics, uh, work a bit more on diet, because diet's going to play the biggest role at the end of the day in your gut microbiome. Like we can do a bunch of different supplements, but if we don't actually eat a good healthy diet, um, lots of different, actually polyphenols are awesome for the gut microbiome. So any kind of like bright colored fruits and vegetables. So like uh, pomegranate seeds, blueberries, like I had for breakfast <laughs> today, um, leafy greens, arugula. So all of the bright colored fruits and vegetables are very high in polyphenols. And these polyphenols work like a probiotic and they feed different types of bacteria in our gut microbiome, continuing to increase that diversity. And that's how we actually can fully heal the gut. It's like the slow transition from gut healing to gut health. And most of what we see online on social media where people now talk about gut health, because now it's sexy. And, you know, when I got into this, you know, how long ago is it? Seven years ago when I was struggling with my gut issues, like gut health wasn't sexy. It was like, no one wants to talk about poop or bloating and this kind of stuff. And it's like, oh, cool. Now everybody's interested in like gut microbiome and gut health. But what we see online is really more so focused on gut health versus gut healing. Yeah. I mean, it's an important distinction. Um, and it seems like, uh, you can't have gut health until it's healed really. I mean, mm -hmm. and I, I would imagine that that's a common mistake that people make is they, they go right to the, the gut health protocol without fixing the problem and, and the root cause first. Is that Normal. Yeah, we break it down into different tiers of quote unquote gut dysfunction. So most everybody is going to have, you know, tier one, which is going to be low diversity in their gut yeah, and maybe a little bit of inflammation and not always, but low diversity since we do microbiome tests on all of our clients and, and probably too, it's like the kind of people who are coming to us already have things that are off, but I'd say literally everybody has yeah. low diversity. Yeah. And part of that also goes back to, right, yes, the foods that we're eating, but also like our soil is very different. Like it's yeah. devoid in a lot of the key minerals and micronutrients, which also plays a massive role in our gut microbiome. So everybody, right, has basically low diversity in our gut. And when I say diversity, it's the abundance of different types 
of good bacteria that are living in our gut. And there's a lot of connections between the more diverse our gut is, uh, the more optimal health, where low diversity is connected with obesity, diabetes, Alzheimer's, mental health issues, autoimmune conditions. So everybody can work on diversity, but then there's these other tiers of gut dysfunction. You know, tier two is more intestinal permeability and a breakdown where someone maybe actually has symptoms, neurological issues. Um, the brain fog that we talked about, tier threes, maybe where there's some bacteria overgrowth that's actually taking place. And then tier four is where somebody actually has a full-blown autoimmune condition, which is ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, Hashimoto's, which we don't think about Hashimoto's, which is a thyroid issue being a gut issue, but our immune system is also based in our gut. Yeah. So it, it depends on each person. I think you can work on gut health. But if you notice things actually getting worse for you instead of better, that's a sign right there that you probably have something that's off and you need to more so focus on gut healing. Yeah. When you talk about um, neurological issues and brain fog, how would you test for and diagnose that other than if somebody's just like, oh, I'm more forgetful than I used to be or like what, how, how do you evaluate that? There's not really a good criteria to evaluate the person like on brain fog neurological like we're, we're taking their their word and what they're telling us is like their big symptoms um you know but it is interesting because we've had people come in who like they are they're like i'm fine like i feel great and then we do the testing and we still see a lot of these things that are off in their gut and we work on it and then they feel 10 times better and they're like i didn't even know that i yeah. felt bad i, I just they just didn't know what it was like to feel good. And I think that so many people is, so many people are living at this baseline of what they feel like is good, but they don't actually truly know what it's like to feel good. Yeah, wow, that's kind of sad. Mm -hmm. uh, artificial sweeteners. Yeah. If there's a vice that I have as I sit here drinking it, uh, it's things with artificial. But that one Starburst, say yeah, on it's it? a Starburst flavored <laughs> C4, which has like That's like the that, worst one, yeah. C4. Yeah. Is that uh, no, well, I mean, they're all terrible. They're right? all terrible. C four was like my very first ever pre workout I took. Yeah, I remember like back in college, I was just getting into like weightlifting and bodybuilding, and someone was like, "Try this C four pre workout." I took it, and I, you know, when you get like the tingles the yeah. first time you're taking a pre workout. I had like a whole freak out because I was driving. I was like, "Stop the car!" Yeah. I think what is happening, and it's very high in caffeine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, artificial sweeteners, there's a lot of mixed studies about that for gut health. A lot of the studies have been done more so on animals. However, there now is some good studies on humans. So people argument both ways. They're like, you know, it, that's in a high dose in animals versus humans. But, you know, I can speak to a lot of the clients that we've worked with. And I know for myself too, we tend to see a decrease in people who actually have gut symptoms like bloating when we do remove artificial sweeteners. Yeah. And I'm more so speaking to like sucralose, um, their sugar alcohols like xylitol, mannitol, which even when we put somebody on a gut healing diet, these sugar alcohols, we know are fermentable to gut bacteria. So I think for people who have poor gut health and are actually dealing with a lot of these chronic gut issues or symptoms, um, it can exacerbate a lot of that. But I think for people who are, are pretty healthy, they should be able to tolerate a little bit of it. However, I will say monk fruit, stevia are always going to be the most ideal yeah. in terms of gut health. But I mean, any of them, if you Google online, look at side effects, you'll see 
bloating, constipation, diarrhea is the side effects of a lot of these artificial sweeteners. Yeah, um, that makes sense. The uh, caffeine, uh, do you have a, a position on caffeine? Is, is, would you classify it as, as kind of a similar, like some is okay, but if you're healthy, some, but there's for sure too much or what? Would you? I'd say like most of my advice besides like, you know, obvious foods like seed oils, processed foods like that, I'm never really like, don't ever do this. It's bad. It's good. Like there are certain things that can be tolerated and be totally fine for health. I am all for caffeine, but if somebody is dealing with a ton of adrenal issues and stress in their life and insomnia, um, or, or even a lot of poor gut health, you know, overdoing the caffeine can make things worse. Yeah. Um, I know for myself, like a while back, I struggled with a, a bit of like burnout and ca caffeine for me, like exacerbated all of the issues that I was dealing with. And uh, we'll see a lot of people who have adrenal fatigue, especially, you know, with the way things are nowadays, we're overworking. There's not a whole lot of, you know, time that where we connect with ourselves, with family. So much of our worth is put in the doing and in our jobs, how much money we're making. And I think, um, I know for myself, I think women too are just a bit more prone to reaching burnout because, you know, running a business, it is a bit more of a masculine thing to do for sure. So I've had to find my own balance, but I think, you know, with caffeine, there's like that benefit. And then there's like the negative. So like in, in small amounts, like hundred to 200 milligrams, like it can be beneficial, but anything above that, I think we see more of a, a net return. And I know that even true for myself, I'm like one cup of coffee, I feel awesome. Two cups of coffee, I feel like more will make me feel better than now I just feel like anxiety ridden. Yeah. What uh, adrenal fatigue, that's something that similarly has talked a little bit more about. Can you talk about what it is, uh, why it's detrimental, and I guess most importantly, how you identify it. Yeah. So adrenal fatigue, I always give the analogy, is kind of like a, a diabetic, right? So you produced so much cortisol because you've been in this, you know, sympathetic state, uh, chronically stressed state where your cortisol has been chronically elevated for a long period of time where eventually it actually starts to go low. Uh, very similar to that diabetic whose insulin levels and blood sugar levels are chronically elevated from overeating. And then eventually their pancreas kind of gives out on producing more insulin. So adrenal fatigue's a, a version of that in functional medicine. We call it HPA axis dysfunction. So HPA hypothalamus pituitary adrenals, our adrenals produce cortisol and DHEA. And in acute stressors, you know, the stress response is very beneficial. So think of like working out, that's a very beneficial stressor. Your cortisol goes up, you're in more of like a fight or flight response, but then after you're done working out, your body recovers. And from that small stressor, your body actually builds up some resilience and you're stronger. Ice baths, those are something that I do each day. It's a short-term stressor, but it's for us who are falling in this chronic stress state, a lot of the guys you have on your podcast, you know, we're always in this hyper aroused state where eventually our adrenals stop producing as much cortisol. And there's different stages of it. Stage one, typically, you know, it's uh, maybe a little bit of some chronic cortisol, but your body recovers quite a bit. It can be more asymptomatic, meaning you get the cortisol spike, maybe it stays a little bit elevated. And then, you know, everything kind of eventually returns back to baseline. 
kind of what we'd see more in just the normal acute stressors, but maybe a little bit more elevated, not always symptomatic. Stage two of adrenal fatigue is when we're just in that chronically elevated stress state. So cortisol is really high all the time. So typically there's a lot of anxiety here. There's, um, we can see the gut be a bit more negatively affected too, because we're in that chronically elevated cortisol state, the gut shuts down. So we're not digesting very well. So constipation can be common. Insomnia can be common too, just because of that cortisol that's being produced. And then um, stage three is where we go more on the decline with cortisol. Now it's low. This is the person who's now opposite. They're fatigued all the time. I use the analogies like wired and tired is really the feeling of adrenal fatigue. So I'm like, I'm wired all the time. I feel anxious, but I'm so tired. And I have to rely on a cup of coffee, multiple cups of coffee to even feel any sort of energy during the day. And that's because caffeine is going to stimulate a bit of a cortisol response. So we talk about cortisol being bad, right? When it's too high, but it's also not good when it's really low because it's just going to lead to like very flat, fatigued levels of energy. And then there's even a stage four, which is complete like adrenal failure, but that's not something we really see with my practice. Yeah. Um, is it an evaluation or is there actual like blood testing that you do for that? Yeah, we do uh, HP access testing, which can be done through the urine or the saliva. So it's testing cortisol levels throughout the day. So we test it upon wakening. We tested about 30 minutes later, tested around noon, midday, in the evening time. And what we should see is a spike in cortisol within 30 minutes of waking up. This is our cortisol awakening response. This happens in correlation to typically with the sun rising. So it's our circadian rhythm. And then we should see a decline in cortisol throughout the day where it's the lowest in the evening time. And then we'll see a melatonin pick up in the evening time and that's our whole circadian rhythm so somebody who has stage two will see cortisol you know spike really high in the morning well above the baseline of where it should be spiking to and maybe it's they're getting random spikes during the day or it's just chronically elevated and then stage three we'll just see more like a flatliner mm. so just no cortisol production at all yeah um the ice bath cold plunge first thing in the morning that uh augments cortisol spike right in a good way first thing it gives you a cortisol spike i don't do it first first thing in the morning though so how, how long are you waiting before you jump in there at least a good hour oh really yeah i'm not like first when i i wake up and i you know i feel a little bit groggy right in the morning and it takes me about a good 30 minutes but typically it's about a good 30 minutes before you get that cortisol response anyway so what, what is the first hour of your day look like so one of the things i stopped doing actually six months ago, was even setting an alarm. Really? Mm-hmm. So how'd you make it here on time? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, my body, I just learned, naturally wakes up within a certain window. But I think uh, talking a little bit about my own burnout and running a business and, and doing all of these things that I love, you know, I uh, and I work from home too. That's definitely helped where I know a lot of people don't have the ability to to work from home and kind of set their own schedules. But um, having that alarm set, for myself, you know, it was interfering a, a lot with uh, me getting good quality of sleep. And I had to start thinking about sleep as actually being part of my business investment, you know, because I'm the, the very driven woman. I'm type A. I I'm, will get things done right away and I'll put a lot of pressure on myself. 
So actually me getting rid of an alarm allowed me to wake up when my body naturally wanted to wake up, which is usually between 5 a.m. and 5.45 a.m. Really? Pretty consistently. Uh, do you subscribe to the completely darked out room? Where, mm -hmm. so Blackout. So the sun. Earplugs, all of it. Oh, wow. So the sun isn't going to wake you up because it's yeah. not getting in. Yeah. Oh, you'll see like the sun around like the cracks of the windows and that's normally a sign. And I have trees covering my entire backyard. So yeah. I, the birds actually wake me up oh, most wow. of the time. And that's yeah. why I have to sleep yeah. with earplugs. Yeah. I, I actually don't set an alarm normally either. Other than, I mean, there's times where, yeah, like, where like you have to like a flight yeah. and yeah, things like that. So yeah, I let yeah. my body wake up naturally. And that's been like one of the best things I could have done for my energy and my mental health actually. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, I mean, mine's a fair bit later. It's like six thirty to seven most mornings, I would say. But uh, do you are you a, a hard line in bed by a certain time also? Yeah, usually I'm winding down by eight p.m. and I'm asleep by nine. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's a uh, so not always too. Like there, yeah. there's always like those things that come up in evening times and events and dinners and where I don't get to go to bed and and I, my body still wakes me up typically between that five five forty five period. Um, regardless, which sometimes sucks because, you know, I traveled this last weekend and there were some nights I didn't go to bed till like midnight or one. And I'm like, all right, we're up. And it's, yeah. you know, five, wow. five fifteen in the morning. But so most nights you're getting close to eight hours of sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Um, Age-related issues. Um, do you take how, how big of a factor is somebody's age when they come into your practice, um, you know, d depending on what they're looking at? You know, it definitely plays a role. I'd say metabolically, we see a lot more issues with, you know, older age. And I'd say the majority of people we work with are age like 40, 50 or so typically fall into that age range. But, you know, we work with a lot of women as well. And some of the biggest things that we see is a lot of that insulin resistance and inflammation, but actually often a byproduct of low skeletal muscle mass that we see quite a bit. And, you know, one of the biggest piece of advice that I could give to like any women and men, but women in particular who are entering into the age of menopause, like that, that client type who's like, I can't lose weight despite you know, eating as little as possible and doing a bunch of exercise and, you know, we get their labs back and they're inflamed and they have some insulin resistance and they're like, I don't get it. I don't know why. Um, it's really been a, a byproduct of not focusing on building skeletal muscle mass throughout their entire life. And after the age of 30, we see 
an average of a 3 to 8% decline in skeletal muscle mass per year. Oh, in women or period? Uh, in women yeah. in particular. 3 to 8% per year mm-hmm. after 30. At the, after the age of 30. Wow. If they're not focusing yeah. actually on skeletal muscle mass. Right. A uh, little bit unrelated, but I, I've seen you post about it a few times. Are you completely anti-birth control? I wouldn't say I'm anti-birth control, but I am pro-optimal health. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I birth control is not conductive for optimal health. It, I mean, it's not. Do you put it in the category of chemical castration? I mean, it kind of yeah. is, right? It is. And, and, you know, it's unfortunate, too, because we tell women it's this miracle pill and it's going to fix all of your hormone issues. And we actually tell women that it's going to balance their hormones, or that's a lot what's out there. I know for me, when I got in it, when I was a teenager, it's like, it's going to give you clear skin. It's going to balance your hormones. You'll have an easy period, menstrual cycle. You don't have to worry about it. And uh, there was a point in my life where I just was like, I kind of wonder what it would be like, because I don't really know myself like with like my actual hormones. And I came off of it, and I started to deal with what I, I found out was post-birth control syndrome. My, my skin flared up. I had a lot of acne again. I actually didn't have a menstrual cycle for three months even after I came off. Um, I had a lot of anxiety. Um, and uh, I had to really work on then about balancing my hormones. But it led me to this, this research more about female hormones and birth control and how birth control, you know, it's, how it really is negatively impacting not just our, our female hormones, but our entire body. You know, there was even some really interesting studies about how women who are taking oral contraceptives actually preferred uh, feminine facial features in men. Yeah. So I, it affected I, their mate selection. Yeah, I saw that same thing, which, you know, to me stands to reason if you think about like say from the 1950s to now the the preference in in more of an emasculated men man you know women women the reality is women dictate what guys how guys behave you know i mean because they're they're the gatekeepers if you will uh to what men want right and uh and so if they go down this path of selecting more effeminate men men are, are going to inherently become that way uh, because, you know, from a, a mate selection standpoint, which is pretty fucking scary, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at, you know, the the shift that's taken place in, in Western society over the last 100 years. There are more feminine men. It's crazy. It's, I mean, it's absolutely crazy. Like, I'm dumbfounded at, uh, at, at how, I mean, just, I mean, I've mentioned this a few times. I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but, like, when I grew up, you know, in the eighties, like the action flick, like the, the role models that kids, my the boys, my age had were Rambo commando, you know, GI Joe it was like tough double a personality dudes that didn't take any shit that had big jaws. And, you know, I mean like, and, and didn't fuck around. And now like when you look at pop culture and, and the influences that are there, it's, it's a stark contrast from that. I mean that like that, that type of Rambo, uh, essence is demonized, you know? Um, yeah. so I guess, you know, for, you know, for anybody, listen, not that there's a, a huge woman, uh, demographic in terms of the mic drop listenership, but, but men should know about this too, because yeah, agreed. I mean, for their women in yeah. particular. Yeah. So what, what's the, the balance then? I mean, cause not to get way off into the weeds, uh, and turn it into a sex podcast, but I mean, you know, if, if, not getting pregnant is a priority, yeah. uh, you know, 
I think the best description of couples who practice the pullout method are called parents um, is it doesn't work. Um, you know, so what? Well, cycle ha- tracking, you know, guys track your <laughs> woman's cycle yeah. or, or help them learn more about their cycle. And I'm blown away how many women don't actually know what's happening during their cycle. Yeah. Like they know nothing about their body at all. It was something that I remember even learning about like as a, an adult in my 20s. And I'm like, I didn't know this. I didn't know this. Right. And we're taught that, you know, these hormones are just about even to pregnancy and creating a baby. But there's also so many other benefits. So progesterone that women have actually act on GABA receptors in the brain. GABA receptors is what is acted on by Xanax Valium. So it's an anti-anxiety hormone. So, you know, if your woman is struggling a lot with anxiety and uh, poor sleep and mental health, you know, she's getting this synthetic type of progestin often in hormones and she's not actually getting the benefits of the bioidentical hormone progesterone. Also too, if your woman suffers with a libido sex drive, birth control kills female libido. So we see a decrease in testosterone. Uh, we see an increase in something called sex hormone binding globulin. So it's binding up all of the testosterone. So it's not even just that you can't get pregnant because you're not producing any of your hormones, basically putting you into a menopause range with your actual hormones, but it's also killing the woman's libido where she's like, I don't even want to have sex anyway. doesn't even sound great, but you know, women can only get pregnant typically five days out of the month. There's five days. And if we were to learn how to track our cycles, so you know, day one is the first day we get our period. Not to go too in depth because I know there's a lot of guys on here, but it's important well, it's, for them yeah. to know. Uh, most women will ovulate typically around days uh, 12 to 14 or so. And then um, for a 28-day cycle, you know, it'll start all over again. But there's just that window around ovulation, maybe a couple days before and a couple days after where a woman can actually get pregnant. And I know for myself, I used to believe like, oh, you can get pregnant anytime during the month. That's actually not true. So by practicing something called fertility awareness method and women actually tracking their cycles, knowing when they're ovulating, you know, this is a much better form of birth control. So it's like, okay, pull out method, you know, or using a condom during just that ovulation window, but the rest of the month. Yeah. Have at it. Have at it. All right. I mean, that is for sure. Good to know. I guess, you know, with birth control being as I would say detrimental as it is. Um, why does it seem like so few people realize how significant it is? Cause to me, I, I mean, I kind of would view it as similar to say like really nasty preservatives, right? Is that like if, if something that you're putting in your body is so powerful that it keeps you from being able to, to reproduce, which is arguably mankind's primary goal, you know, it's the survivability of the species. So it's inhibiting that. Like that has to be Mm -hmm. ridiculously powerful and can't be good for you. Same with like, if you're putting a chemical on meat, that's so, so nasty that the natural process of bacteria growth says, fuck that, I'm not touching it. That can't be good to put into your body. Mm -hmm. So both of those things, like why, why from your perspective and what you do for a living, is there such a mental disconnect? Is it a marketing thing? I think uh, how it's been framed for most women in in two ways. I think one, birth control has really been framed as female empowerment quite a bit of like, 
I want to be able to live my life, live it on my terms, and not have to ever worry about getting pregnant. So we framed it as woman empowerment, as a society. And I'm, again, all for women being like, hey, I'm not ready to have kids yet. I want to go pursue my dreams. Hey, that's me over here. But what they're not educated on is all of the negative side effects of what they're doing for their body. They're only taught about the benefits, clearing your acne, not having to worry about cycle, have sex whenever you want, don't have to worry about getting pregnant. Like that's all that's taught. And I think that's why women are so blown away when they actually hear about a lot of these side effects. And you know, when I post about it online, I get a lot of women who are actually upset and angry. And they're like, how could you say that? That's not woman empowerment to talk about. I'm like, no, what I'm talking about is the education side of this, of actually knowing what it's doing in your body and then make a decision. You know, but have all of the information to be able to make a decision. And most women do not have all of the education. And then I think, too, you know, I think women have also been taught that having a period is something that is disgusting and dirty. And it's really unfortunate because we've been taught to actually reject a part, part of ourselves. And we as women do it, you know, we're like, oh, man, my period, all this. And guys are like, oh, she's PMSing and all this. And there's like a negative frame put around it. So we're like, okay, this is a great way to basically get rid of it completely. But what's empowering is actually being able to learn to work with the female cycle because there's actually different energetic shifts that a woman goes through every single month. And I, I like to think about it like, like how cool, like what God created in a woman that, you know, her hormones and the things that are changing over the course of a month like most studies even done um, in terms of like nutrition and metabolic health are usually done on men or postmenopausal women actually they're very rarely done on cycling women because a lot of the researchers actually look at it as being way too complicated mm. and that's what's approach is given in the view to a lot of it like this is too complicated i don't want to have to deal with it but what if we could flip the switch and look at it more from what if I can learn to work with this and really be able to tap into the power that it offers? Yeah. Knowledge is power, right? Mm -hmm. Amen. Um, we're bouncing around a little bit here, but uh, there's just a lot of topics I'm, I'm curious to get your take on. Um, cognition and brain health. Uh, I know we talked a little bit about EPA and DHA and, and omega-3. And Is there anything else that you would add to... Um, kind of the, the brain health regimen of, of things to make sure you're either eating or supplementing? Anything that affects blood flow is going to affect the brain. So even for guys listening, if you struggle with blood flow issues anywhere throughout your body. So Viagra. Viagra, ED. <laughs> you can know right away that you're struggling with blood flow to your brain because it doesn't really just happen in one isolated area usually. So working on blood flow to the brain is one of the best things that we can do. Ginkgo is actually a great supplement. I started taking that myself. Um, it's also one of the other reasons why exercise is so beneficial for brain health because you actually start to get blood flowing yeah. and going to the brain quite a bit. Uh, I just realized you didn't completely answer the, uh, the first hour of the day. First uh, hour, yeah. yeah. You talked about when you got up uh, and why, but uh, uh, if we can talk about, uh, go back to that real quick. Yeah, so we talked about, I don't set an alarm anymore. Uh, usually, I mean, the first thing I do is I drink two glasses of water because your body is dehydrating all night long. So I drink a bunch of water right when I wake up. 
get that in. That's also a great way to wake up your organs, your brain, everything else, because dehydration, talking more about brain health, um, is one of the biggest things that can play a role in uh, cognitive decline as well too, brain fog throughout the day. So hydration, I then go into typically some kind of uh, mindset work. And this is for me has shifted over the years right now. It's a bit more of a meditation practice that I have. I'll have a little bit of matcha and then I'll do 30 minutes meditation. Sometimes it's more visualization. Sometimes it's me just literally sitting there drinking my matcha tea and like listening to more meditation music. Sometimes I'm under my red light. Uh, Sometimes I'm doing journaling, but I give myself a good 30 minute period to really just sit with myself. And I started to do that because, you know, it's easy to just get up and go into go mode. My body just doesn't operate that way. It takes me like at least a good 30 minutes to wake up. So it allows me to like get still, be very intentional with my day, how I want to feel instead of just going more into reactionary mode throughout the day. And then the second thing I do is always some kind of movement. So right now it's getting outside, going for a a short run, definitely focus on weightlifting. I have a little in-home gym in my garage. So I'll go for a run, I'll do some weightlifting, come back, maybe jump in my ice bath or just take a cold shower and then get into my day. Yeah. With the ice bath or cold shower, do you notice a a significant difference not doing it versus doing it? I feel like I do. And I actually do more ice baths now midday in between my work calls that I have versus just always in the morning. And the biggest thing that I notice for me is more so just like mental clarity, going back to that. You know, it wakes me up right away. And two, it's really good for calming anxiety levels. So midday, sometimes like if I just want to wake up, I'll just jump in the ice bath and jump out. It's like better than any cup of coffee yeah. that you could have. Yeah. Um, but sometimes if you if you can get up to like that two, three minute mark, it, it sucks. But then after there's a really good just calming effect. I think I read somewhere and I don't know if this is accurate at all, but it said that, you know, a three minute ice bath is equivalent to doing two hours of meditation. Yeah, I don't doubt it. I mean, I, I do the cold shower every morning, which this time of year in Texas, 20 seconds maybe of legit cold water and then it's just not and then it's warm cold. water yeah. yeah well it's not cold for me I mean, it's like two seconds in the shower so it's really yeah. like ah and then you gotta yeah. get your good yeah i mean my mine i get a, a good 20 seconds in the winter time it's fucking freezing yeah. you know um and oh. and i have a, a pool so what benefits do you see from it um you know for me it, it's it's more the it's almost like a sense of euphoria afterwards yeah. you know um even with the amount of time that i spent you know, being in cold, shitty water and, and whatever, um, to me, it's not something you really get used to, kind of, or, or you never look forward to it. And so for me, it, it's the second I get up, like the very first thing yeah, I do is, is, is get in, in a cold shower. And in the wintertime, it's tough. There, There's times, uh, especially this past winter, where we got some gnarly storms where the pool was like half frozen. So I'd actually go get in, in the pool because it was really cold. Um, and you're awake, I bet, right after Oh, that. for sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, but for me, it, it's more the, the mental uh, hurdle that, not that it's like I'm having a real hard time doing it. I just, I, I don't want to do it, and I do it. And so it kind of sets the tone. For me, it's more of a of a mental thing. Like, yeah, yeah. I feel good physically, and there's kind of that um, awake and, and calmness and whatever. I don't, I wouldn't say I really have a lot of issues with stress making me feel overwhelmed or, or anxious or, or any of that. I've... I think just very fortunately never really had a, a lot of trouble with that. But yeah, so for me, it's it's more of kind of the psychological component to it that 
that I find makes me feel really good because I, I did it. Mm-hmm. So now it's like, okay, that's out of the way. Kind of, kind of like working out first thing in the yeah. morning. It's like, okay, that's done. I don't have to worry about it now. And, and so for me, that's the thing. But uh, with this summer, this is the first summer that I've been doing it the entire summer. I started mm. the first day of the year. Uh, and so for the first few months, the shower was great because it was still really cold. But I'm looking at getting uh, some sort of plunge. Where do you use the plunge? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we have a two-person plunge. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of different brands out there. I mean, from a... Uh, from your experience with it maintenance wise is it not not a big deal like you're not having to drain it and clean it Mm-mm. ours just does uh oxygen oh okay and uh we had drained it a couple times but it's more so if you don't rinse off before getting in oh i got you because uh, like i'll come back from like a run and be like you know all the sweat and yeah. take my shoes off in the backyard and have dirt on the bottom of my feet and get yeah. in the ice bath. it tur- turns into yeah. a salt water plunge yeah a little sweat uh that's no, good stuff um Again, with the cognition, um, you talked, I know we're bouncing back and forth again. I want to go back to the cognition thing. You mentioned ginkgo. Uh, are there any other uh, foods or supplements that are um, particularly advantageous for cognition? Vitamin D. And we see a lot of people who are low in vitamin D. You know, probably the second most common deficiency we see outside of omega-3 fatty acids. Um, vitamin D is crucial for mental health omega-3s, ginkgo, working a bit more on blood flow, and then um, what else? Uh, B vitamins can also be pretty beneficial as well, too. Uh, foods or supplements, you just take vitamin B, like 12 or what? Um, typically, you can do a methylated type of B vitamin. So, you know, talking a little bit more about inflammation, you know, and, and not going too in the weeds too about this, but uh, methylation is a process in, in our body that helps with detoxification. It helps deal with inflammation. It does three, over 300 different types of processes in our body. And uh, we test for something called homocysteine quite a bit, and it's a marker for inflammation. And when that's a bit high, we typically know that somebody needs to have a specific type of pre-methylated B vitamins. Uh, it's a very common genetic issue that somebody can have where they're not methylating very well. So supporting methylation with uh, some pre-methylated B vitamins can also be pretty beneficial for mental health. Oh, okay. Uh, is the Metagenics brand, uh, do they make everything? Like, are you, are you a big fan of theirs or, or do you have a lot of different brands depending on what the supplement is? We have a lot of different brands. They're all uh, pharmaceutical, <laughs> high quality brands that we use uh, that are typically partnered with different types of functional medicine practices. Um, that you can only get. That we can, yeah, Metagenics is one of the big ones. We use Quicksilver Scientific quite a bit, so they make a lot of different liposomes. Um, you know, they do a lot of different things towards uh, cognition as well, a lot on detoxification, uh, liposomal glutathione, NAD. Um, those can be used quite a bit. You know, there's a lot on NAD too for supporting, you know, mental cognition. You know, you know that's also like an area of, I'm continuously trying to explore and optimize a bit more, you know, it's like, what is the best hack to like, just be like superhuman basically every yeah. single day. Like that's yeah. my goal. Um, actually MCT oils yeah. have been really beneficial for me. So going back to more like a, a nutrition hack. So I will backload my carbohydrates typically to later in the day. You know, I can't go low carb and uh, I, I wouldn't want to anyway, just with how much I train and women, it affects them a bit more negatively. But I do see a benefit when I'm not having my carbohydrates in the morning 
and my diet is typically more protein and fats. And then I'll maybe do a little bit of fasting in the morning, but not too long because if I fast too long, at least for me, I tend to get uh, the opposite effects. So big cortisol <laughs> spike yeah. and then um, it, it's not beneficial because I'm more prone to blood sugar drops, but a little bit of MCT oil, coconut oil in my coffee. Yeah. One of the best things for mental clarity for me. Yeah. Um, and do you, I guess you mentioned Quicksilver Metagenics. Is there? Designs for Health is another one we use. And then, you know, probiotics, there's a lot of different probiotics and we didn't even get to talk about this, but you know, something I'm really excited about right now is psychobiotics yeah. in particular. And you could say it's more for like mental clarity and focus, but it's just really geared towards all around mental health. And they're doing a lot more research on strain specific probiotics that actually can help for anxiety and depression. And they've done some studies about strains of bifidobacterium and lactobacillus that actually work as effective as Lexapro oh, wow. or an SSRI in treatment for oh, people with depression. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, is that something that, that you guys are currently uh, prescribing or giving to your patients or, or are and you? Some psychobiotics for yeah. sure. Uh, what, what example of uh, a psychobiotic do you guys give? With a company called Clara Labs that we use, there's one called Target GBX, and it's a combination of different types of probiotics. I don't know all of them off the top of my head, but different types of bifidobacterium lactobacillus that tend to help support the gut-brain axis. Oh, okay. Uh, so with Clara Labs, Quicksilver, Metagenics, and Design for Health, can anybody order that stuff, or, or do you have to be... Yeah, I'll give you all of my links. Okay. They can order them through me. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Um, mushrooms. Are you a fan of, not mm. the psilocybin type, that's a whole different <laughs> podcast, but, uh, you know, the, the normal ones that you would eat. Like reshi, ashwagandha, lion's mane. Lion's mane. I am a fan of those. Yeah. yeah. And that's another good one that you bring up. So lion's mane also. Yeah. That's a, one I really, really like for mental clarity. Um, lion's mane, reshi, more for relaxation. So a lot of these actually paired with adaptogens as well. So ashwagandha is one of my favorite adaptogens that can be used. Um, there's things like, uh, I'm blanking on some of the names here. Did uh, you forget to take your ginkgo this morning? <laughs> I know. But uh, adaptogens and uh, some of these mushrooms are, are really great for yeah, sure. Yeah. The uh, I'm trying to think the, uh, the name of the mushroom that's in. Uh, have you seen the show The Last of Us? You watch uh -uh. that? No. Um, I can't think of the name of the mushroom, but uh, that that whole series is fascinating. But uh, I guess if you haven't seen it, you wouldn't get it. I'll drop it. But uh, any brands of mushrooms that you recommend or, or you know, I'm still playing around a little bit with them. Um, I don't have a very specific brand that I've used currently. Okay. With the mushrooms, uh, do you do you have one you use? Uh, so I, I put lion's mane in my coffee every morning yeah. and it's a brand called Terrasol, which uh, has a lot of good reviews on Amazon, which is what I based it off of, which I don't know how it's not exactly scientific, but because I'm, I'm sure that that can be bought anyway. But um, there's some really cool research around lion's mane, though, and I'm even going through more of like a SIBO type uh, certification right now just for continuing education. And they even talk quite a bit about lion's mane. And its benefits for healing the gut lining yeah. as well too. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it's mushrooms are are, are really remarkable. Uh, I guess we could, would you consider them vegetables? I don't know. Maybe fungi. Fungi. 
really fun guy. The uh, yeah, I, I mean, they're it's kind of absurd the the amount of benefits that uh, that so many of them have. It's it's fascinating. But uh, books wise, for your average not in the weeds layperson, uh, is there a book or books that you'd recommend that gives kind of a almost a synopsis on what we've talked about today? Hmm. I feel like a lot of my knowledge I've just like accumulated from so many different places. Have you thought about writing a book that synopsizes everything? Yeah, because I'm uh, launching a functional nutrition certification here actually at the end of this year. Oh, cool. Um, So there's two tiers. Tier one is really for anybody because as I shared at the beginning of this podcast, we've had so many people that's gone through my practice and it's been life-changing for them. And it's actually given them the idea and the inspiration to want to help other people. Now, not everybody can do all the testing. So I created a functional nutrition, which is nutrition for gut health, for hormones, for thyroid, for mental health, all of that. And then I have tier two, which is just available for registered dietitians and nurse practitioners, which does encompass a lot of the lab testing side. So basically I have wrote a book because after I put all of this together, it was probably well over a hundred hours of content in that. So my goal is to create a book about healing, you know, what it really does take to heal. Cause you know, even for myself, you know, and I know on our last episode, I talked a little bit about my own journey, you know, and people could look at my life and be like, there's no way, like I should be where I'm at. But I've been so focused and so adamant on my healing and I've done so many different things. And, you know, I focus a lot on the functional medicine thing, but side of everything, but healing for me has also been in a lot of other different areas too. Um, A lot of the other deep inner work between therapy, between working with coaches and, uh, you know, I, I look at it more from a holistic standpoint. So, you know, there is a book for sure in me that encompasses the physical, the functional medicine side, how everything is really interconnected, um, how everything influences everything, but then also to, you know, more so the mental and the spiritual healing and then sharing my own story in that journey. Yeah. So I guess there's one in the works. There's or one there, in the works. It's, it's in here. The course yeah. is like step one. Is, with and, that. and there's not one that you'd recommend uh, that you've read otherwise? That if encompasses everything. Like, there is not. There has been pieces that I've really enjoyed. So, like, in meditation, uh, like, in that area, like, Dr. Joe Dispenza. I like a lot of his books. Um, Dr. Ruscio has some really good books on gut health. Dr. Pimentel. Both of those books are really, really great. Um, hormones, Dr. Jolene Brighton. She talks a lot about uh, birth control. So like beyond the pill is actually one of her books. So I always guide a lot of my clients over to her book who are thinking about coming off of birth control. And they're like, what are other options are there that are non-hormonal? Beyond the pill is awesome. Um, She also has some other great books on female hormones. So a lot of these people, they're like experts in their zone of field. So I've read a lot of different books. I, I feel like there's not someone who's like wrote I don't know, like a functional medicine textbook. And I don't feel like for most people that would be very enjoyable to read. Yeah. I think, you know, if you could take, you know, kind of the overarching, all, all the different topics that we've talked about today and put we it in. a lot. Yeah, but, you know, put it in a very digestible, no pun intended, um, you know, manner where it's not like so far in the weeds where yeah. you're like, fuck, I don't even know what they're talking about. You know, like, because a lot of the stuff, I think most people don't don't need to know maybe the the mechanisms of how things work i mean yeah it's i think it's important to understand 
you know, a, a basic concept of why things are bad and what they do to your body. So you understand, you know, in those times where maybe you're having an urge, if you know, like how detrimental it is, maybe it's easier to, to stay away from it. But I think, you know, that that's the key really is just kind of do an overview of everything and, um, you know, almost like a, a principled approach to it where it's not, um, you know, 600 pages of, yeah, you know, scientific. Actually, speak, a but. really good book that was all-encompassing, uh, Sean Stevenson, Eat Smarter. Mm-hmm. He has a, a pretty good book. Uh, his Audible is awesome. He's, he's pretty funny in it, breaking down a lot in nutrition, even a little bit on lab testing side. Still a little bit more advanced, but he does a good job. And he also has another book called Sleep Smarter. Oh, cool. That he came out with that Sean's goes man. into Sean Stevenson, Stevenson, The Science of Sleep. Okay, great. Uh, all great recommendations. Anything that we didn't talk about that uh, that we should have? I feel like we talked about a lot yeah. in all different areas of functional medicine and health. Well, good. Um, well, I, I, it's always a pleasure having you on here. Um, you know, we sure appreciate you taking the time. I'm, I'm sure we'll have you back again, especially if you if you do write that book. I do have a, a parting gift for you for uh, uh-huh. being on the show here. Uh, at some point, I need to see uh, the one that's in the box. Uh, Thank you. You know, p- post a picture with you this rocking. This is awesome. One is the is the standard uh, coin, and then all right. Since you're in Texas, you got to rock the uh, the belt buckle. So it's a belt buckle, yeah. yeah. See, you know, I'm wearing uh, fake jeans right now. Yeah. These aren't even real pockets. <laughs> well, so I have for, to get some real jeans yeah. to put these on. Yeah, I wear absolutely. jeggings. Well, if if you if you find yourself in a real pair I of like jeans, it. uh, it'd be awesome to have a these picture awesome. picture posted of uh, you rocking the mic right, drop buckle. I'm gonna do it. All right. Well, thank you again for coming. It's always a pleasure having you. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. This is all important stuff, and I think uh, it's easy to uh, to not pay attention to you know things, little things that you put in your body or that you don't do that can make a huge difference. So uh, we appreciate you sharing your knowledge and expertise as always. Thank you for having me back on. Absolutely. Enjoyed it. If you didn't enjoy it, feel free to choke yourself. And until next time, this is Mike Drop. Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen.